Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The wealth of the Dutch, who, to tell the truth, are only a handful of folk crammed into a corner of the earth where there are only water and fields, is an example and proof of the advantages of trade, which cannot be denied. Although that nation gets from its land only butter and cheese, it supplies nearly all of the nations of Europe with the greater part of their necessities. Cardinal Richelieu Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 26.2 the First Anglo-Dutch War, Part 1. After a long break, I'm super excited to present this new season to you guys. If you need a recap of sorts as to where we are, who I am, and what this podcast is all about, please see the previous episodes, the introduction and the prologue. If you wish to simply jump right in here and don't care too much either way, then that's okay too. In the first episode of our four-parter, we look at the background between England and the Netherlands, how they got here, what made them tick, how they made everyone else tick, who they ticked off, why they ticked each other off, the usual. I hope you enjoy the story that is told over the next half hour or so, and that you remember to jump ahead to parts 2, 3 and 4 when you're finished. Because I listen to my fans, and know that sometimes you need a break from even the greatest of voices. Thanks for listening. Now let's hear the history. The year is, well, roughly post-Westphalia, so about 1648-ish, and the fallout from what came before is only just beginning. The states that emerged from the Thirty Years' War inhabited a Europe largely transformed from that which they had known in 1618. The continent remained intact, but its geopolitical makeup had been significantly altered. Sweden was now Scandinavia's superpower and a major player in European politics. 
France had begun the process of supplanting Spain as the continent's predominant state. Both France and Sweden had endured their share of misfortune and strife. The former remained under a shaky regency government as Louis XIV came of age in the backdrop of civil unrest and revolt known as the Fronde, while the latter had only recently emerged from such a government and was now ruled by Queen Christina, Gustavus Adolphus's sole daughter and heir. The major enemies of France and Sweden during the Thirty Years' War, the Holy Roman Empire and Spain, had experienced their own periods of change. The Holy Roman Empire was no longer the politically closed German Empire it had once resembled. The Emperor's word was no longer law but respected counsel, while the larger German states within the Holy Roman Empire constituted very different royal families and holdings that now possessed, since the Westphalia settlement, a greater level of sovereignty and a greater say in their own conduct. This was to manifest itself in the different strands of foreign policy that the various German states of Saxony, Hanover, Brandenburg, Prussia, Bavaria, the Palatinate and others were soon to pursue. The days of Ferdinand II demanding the loyalty of all German princes were long gone, and appeared a distant memory when compared with the careful instruction of his son Ferdinand III. Vienna remained central to German as well as European politics and culture, but certainly change had come to Germany, a change that only the subsequent years would see properly realised. From Habsburg Madrid, the total results of the Thirty Years' War seemed to not yet have dawned. It didn't help, of course, that Spain remained in a state of war with France, a strange effect in itself from the Treaties of Westphalia that solved perhaps all the other European problems but the Franco-Spanish. The Habsburg-Bourbon rivalry did indeed wage on, in Catalonia, in the Spanish Netherlands and in Italy, and would do until 1659. But Spain could at least console itself with the fact that it could count merely one enemy in Europe. Just as France was now at peace with Vienna, Spain had made peace with Sweden, and, perhaps most importantly of all for Madrid, the Eighty Years' War, that disastrous attempt to contain and defeat the rebellious provinces, was over. The most notable change to the European geopolitical system, then, was the official establishment of these rebellious provinces as Europe's predominant naval and economic presence. The Republic of the Seven United Provinces had arrived, and the extraordinary Dutch domination of Europe had begun. 1649 was the first full year of peace that the Dutch Republic had enjoyed in over 80 years, with the exception of the Twelve Years' Truce from 1609 to 21. Its mortal enemy Spain was now economically dependent upon its success. Its allies in Sweden and France remained reliant on its monopolies and naval trade across the Baltic and the Indies. The Dutch Republic, in stark contrast to the outcast English Republic, had no enemies to speak of when it examined the continent in 1649. Yet these two states, although they had come to adopt similar governmental systems and professed to adhere to the same Christian religion, nonetheless became and remained bitter rivals until Charles I's nephew James II was dramatically usurped by the head of the House of Orange in 1688 an event which, in my opinion, is deserving of a film for its incredible events. The 1648 Treaties of Westphalia were meant to signal the end of warfare and usher in a new age of peace, cooperation and prosperity in Europe. Instead, although the impetus and motives for war shifted and the positions and relative strength of its powers had changed, war would remain a constant fixture of Europe for the latter half of the 17th century, 
while its results would also spill over into the 18th century. Figures and issues familiar to students of history or history enthusiasts are ever-present here, but so are some conflicts and people which you may be less familiar with. The story of how two apparently like-minded potential allies came to fight each other is one which many early modern historians have attempted to address. For some, the war doesn't fit with the subsequent British narrative of history. London in each successive century fought against a would-be dictator, be it Louis XIV, Napoleon, Wilhelm II or Hitler. In his book The Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th Century, J.R. Jones launches a long overdue re-examination of the series of conflicts fought between the English and Dutch from 1652 to 1674, beginning with this one. Although English sentiment would come to favour the plucky Dutch Republic just in time for William of Orange to swoop in and rule their kingdom in the Glorious Revolution, the road to such a journey was paved with what can only be described as base motives for war, the kind which, quite frankly, seem somewhat at odds with the picture painted by 19th and 20th century British historians, particularly after World War II, of the constant British quest for freedom against the oppressor. It is worth noting also, as J.R. Jones very perceptively does, how little impact the three connected Anglo-Dutch wars had, or now have, on modern politics, considering how close each came to having drastic implications in their own right. Perhaps this is why each war has received so little attention from history as a whole. It is very difficult to come across such an in-depth examination of the period of Anglo-Dutch conflicts as J.R. Jones provides. It is important we do address the period, though, because what the English and Dutch do here feeds into later events on the continent. Historians like Simon Gronveld maintain that the roots of the conflict can be found in the English Civil War itself, thanks to the efforts of both sides to establish dynastic ties between the Houses of Orange and Stuart, and the divided nature of the House of Commons and the Dutch States General. It can also be explained through the model of imperialistic competition in both America and the Indies, not to mention the quest for monopolies in Russia and elsewhere. When viewed through the lens of what Louis XIV will come to mean for the continent, the Anglo-Dutch wars become even more important. Louis solicited the support of England during his attack on the Dutch Republic in 1672. He would never have been in a position to do so had previous wars between England and the Netherlands not soured their relationship to such an extent. It is for reasons of background that we begin our story of post-Westphalia Europe with the First Anglo-Dutch War. So for those listeners expecting to immediately sink their teeth into Louis XIV, I would ask for your patience. You think you know a story, but you only know how it ends. To get to the heart of the story, you have to go back to the beginning. A prize for whoever can tell me where that line is stolen from. My point is, much like I attempted to show you the history of an era from my own perspective and with the use of my own style in previous projects, I want to do the same here. Of course, if you're listening to this in the future and all subsequent episodes are available, by all means jump ahead. But for those of you who have to wait, I'd like to think that the story, that in fact the his story, will benefit from the chronological approach I'm about to follow now. An obvious disclaimer would be to denote the fact that many other podcasts will examine this era of English history better than I'm about to. My coverage is designed to be adequate, so hopefully it suffices. But if you crave more English history for this era, seek out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast that you cannot be unaware of, 
In fact, it may be a good idea to listen to that before listening to me. If you're not too bothered either way, here's a quick intro to English history. In 1642, the first English civil war breaks out due to a number of factors, including Charles I attempts to reduce Parliament's say in how the country is run, and his repeated use of foreign enemies, like Scotland and Ireland, to impose his will. We Irish were apparently that scary. Some say the civil war was a long time coming, since Parliament's evolving and ever-expanding ideas of what it was entitled to simply did not gel with the growing popularity of absolutist monarchy as well as the niggling issues of taxation and religion that continued to plague in England, mostly removed from the horrors of the Thirty Years' War. Skipping the military developments for the sake of brevity and my own preference, Charles's royalist forces initially do well, in particular his cavalry, but by the mid-1640s, Parliament's new model army hands Charles's cause a series of defeats, culminating in the Battle of Naseby in June 1645. From there, Charles escapes captivity only to surrender himself to the Scots, only to be handed over to the English Parliament as part of a deal, only to try to escape again. By this phase, the First Civil War, or simply the Civil War to the English at the time, had effectively ended, and Parliament was attempting to pick up the pieces in Ireland and Scotland, as well as establish its position. All the while, of course, Charles continued to try and exploit the apparent divisions between English Parliament, which was divided over what to do with the captured king, and the army, which contained a great deal of radicals. Charles can't have been completely helpless, because in May 1648, remnants of royalists joined with an invading Scots army to perpetrate the Second Civil War. This time, though, Charles would see none of its battles. Although he continued to turn to the pen, and although Parliament actually voted in favour of continuing negotiations with him, in early December 1648, the hardliners were beginning to launch their bid for power. Spurred by the success and presence of the new model army, the triumphant figure of Cromwell and the unpopularity of Charles I after his shenanigans had caused the Second Civil War, Parliament was purged of moderates in late December 1648, and in the process the last barrier to the most drastic action crumbled. At the beginning of 1649, Charles I was executed, and Parliament passed an act which redefined England as a republic. This act, passed on 19th of May 1649, reads thus, Be it declared and enacted by this present Parliament and by the authority of the same, that the people of England and all of the dominions and territories thereunto belonging are and shall be, and are thereby constituted, made, established and confirmed to be a commonwealth and a free state, and shall from henceforth be governed as a commonwealth and free state and by the supreme authority of this nation, the representatives of the people in Parliament, and by such as they shall appoint and constitute as officers and ministers under them for the good of the people, and that without any king or house of lords. The Second Civil War thus ended, the Third began, with campaigns fought in Scotland and Ireland, until in November 1651, when England subdued its enemies, and established the Commonwealth across the British Isles. In April 1653, the so-called Rump Parliament, named due to the fact that only a portion or rump section of it remained following the purge of December 1648, was dissolved by Cromwell as the latter took control of England and was named Lord Protector of the Commonwealth in a period known as the Protectorate. It was not a very happy time for English society as Puritanism reigned supreme, but not for long. Cromwell died in September 1658 and when his son failed to match his father or maintain his power base, he resigned in May 1659, 
and the Rump Parliament resumed, eventually making the collective decision to bring back Charles's son, Charles II, from exile. The Restoration thus began. It would last until 1688, when the Glorious Revolution usurped Charles II's brother James II, and thus the Stuarts, for good, and eventually led to the Hanoverian monarchy of the 18th century. Although I just told you the course of English history from 1642, what I didn't do was capture the state of the English nation in 1649. Desperate for allies in a sea of ideological, political and religious enemies, not to mention facing a hostile Scotland in the north and Ireland across the Irish Sea, the Rump Parliament looked to its only ally on the continent for support. Intermarriage between the Anglo-Scottish House of Stuart and House of Orange that remained the de facto royal family of the Republican Netherlands in previous years meant that the rump had historic reasons to be positive. Yet they also had reason to be cautious. England was not the only state with notable divisions. The triumphant Dutch Republic had them too. To understand the situation facing the Dutch Republic in 1650, we must examine its roots. In 1579, the Union of Utrecht, an alliance between the seven provinces of Holland, Zeeland, Gelderland, Utrecht, Freeland, Overijssel and Groningen, was signed. Though the United Provinces is one of many correct terms to use when referring to the Dutch state from this point until 1795, Union as a term can be taken quite loosely. The different provinces would by no means ever seek to withdraw from the union that they had created, and some, particularly the less economically sufficient, recognised the importance of Holland and Zealand, both of whom faced onto the sea and constituted the bulk of Dutch prosperity from trade. However, all seven provinces by no means always got along either. Holland and Zealand, as the major sea-facing provinces, were concerned with naval defence, the remaining provinces, especially the inland ones like Utrecht and Gelderland, were concerned with the creation of a strong army in a buffer zone between themselves and their enemies along the Dutch-German or modern-day Dutch-Belgian border. It is important to remember just how much the war with Spain shaped these provinces. Fighting an enemy on land and at sea for 80 years necessitated the development of a coherent strategy between all provinces. Holland, Zeeland and to a lesser extent Freeland and Groningen created the means by which the Dutch could fight the Spanish across the seas. Meanwhile, Utrecht, Gelderland and Overijssel worked on creating a ring of fortresses in Brabant to the south so as to protect their inner core from the Spanish Netherlands and the Holy Roman Empire. Despite the definite part each province had to play in the war, Holland inevitably became the most important due to the greater proportion of its income and industry that resided there. Holland's heavy development and importance to the Republic as a whole is the major reason why people who don't know any better refer to the modern-day Kingdom of the Netherlands as simply Holland. Do not do that in front of someone from Utrecht, Zeeland or elsewhere. In fact, don't do it at all. 
Holland's position and the location of Amsterdam, The Hague and Rotterdam within it ensured its vitality to the Dutch Golden Age, but Holland still technically had just as much of a say as anyone else, no more and no less. The constitution of the Netherlands in 1579 aimed at ensuring that the independence of each province would remain intact, and for this to happen the States General, essentially the Dutch Executive, would be made up of one delegate from each of the seven provinces. Within each of the seven provinces themselves, a kind of assembly or states existed, and these states would essentially debate the matters of their province, conduct its day-to-day operations, and elect the representative that they would send to the States General in The Hague. J.R. Jones, in his book I mentioned before, The Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th Century, echoes this analysis. Quote, Throughout the two centuries it existed, sovereignty remained in each of the constituent provinces. In the representative bodies, or states, each of which was constituted differently. The seven provinces sent deputies to the states general with binding instructions on how they should vote. Each province in rotation supplied the president, which prevented the office becoming one of importance. Each deputation had one vote, in theory there was no waiting for population, or the proportion of province contributed in revenue, although in practice little could be decided against Holland's opposition but Holland could not necessarily get the decisions that it interest required since unanimity was formally required on all important matters. End quote. This was the system that the Dutch had to work with, and it sounds simple enough. Seven provinces, one man from each, with one vote and a rotating president. However, it gets complicated somewhat with the office of stadtholder. This is a term you may recognise, and we've come across it before, but I've never really explained it, mainly because I didn't want to get into the terminology and, well, I didn't really understand it myself. A stadtholder was a position in each of the seven provinces. Before the Dutch revolted against Spain, it had been occupied by a rep from Spain, and treated as a kind of lord-lieutenant position, which essentially meant it was a colonial posting designed to ensure Dutch compliance with Spain in each of the provinces though it did date back to medieval times as a concept. After the Spanish were expelled, the office and position remained, but as a kind of ceremonial place. It only really gained importance once the Princess of Orange became associated with it, and then only because these Princes of Orange, once they became Stadtholder, shortly thereafter became the Captain General of the Dutch Army and the Commanding Admiral of the Navy too. The Dutch couldn't very well make their Princes of Orange into kings, well at least not yet, so they instead bestowed upon them this honorary title, as a representation of how important such princes were. Because Holland was the most important Dutch province at the time, and the first free Dutch stadtholder had been named as William the Silent, or the original William of Orange that first established the Oranges as a household name, the office of stadtholder was off to an auspicious start. Holland was believed to hold the most power, and indeed the Princes of Orange sought and were often granted the position, Stadtholder of Holland, during wartime. As the war progressed and advanced against Spain, and as the need for a firm hand against their enemy became paramount, what it meant to be Stadtholder visibly changed, from a ceremonial figurehead with limited prerogatives, to one of actual power, with some of the later Princes of Orange, like William II, attempting to create an actual hereditary institution out of the office. When William II suddenly died in 1650, before he could realise his dream to create a royal family based out of Holland's stadtholder position, 
the province decided that they had had enough of the Princes of Orange attempting to increase their own power, so nobody was elected or asked to assume the post. This decision was made easier by the fact that William III, the late William's son, was only an infant in 1650. Because Holland no longer had a Prince of Orange as Stadtholder in 1650, it was, for the first time in living memory, operating under a new executive system that relied on the original constitution of the Dutch Republic set down in 1579. The position of Stadtholder had been a convenient loophole that made sense to utilise during times of crisis, like war, but the war with Spain was over now. Thus, because there was no strong guiding figure in the Republic's most important province anymore, the Dutch Republic was now a true Republic that relied on representative systems. It is a period known in history as the first Stadtholderless period. The second was to occur after William III's death in 1702. Dutch citizens at the time, and especially some of the wealthy Hollanders who approved of the stunting of the House of Orange's power, referred to this period as the era of true freedom. Holland, of course, was not the only province that could appoint a Stadtholder. As I said, every one of the seven provinces could, and apparently some of the other provinces had so enjoyed the spectacle that they placed distant relatives of the Princes of Orange in the position. However, because these provinces were of lesser importance than Holland in the grand scheme of things, the issue of whether the other provinces did or didn't have a Stadtholder was of little real consequence. Does this make sense? Really, all you need to know is that the Stadtholder is an important posting, but that only in Holland does it suggest a position in the Republic close to absolute power. This is pretty much the running theme of Dutch history during the period. The position of Grand Pensionary, which essentially meant the head of the states in a particular province, would be elevated by Holland yet again, thanks to the Herculean efforts of Johan de Witt, who we'll meet later on. The reason why figures kept popping up with strange titles and suggestive powers is because the Dutch officially did not want a king-like figure, a la Philip II, to rule over the provinces. Such historic experience explains why even the creation of the office of Stadtholder made such waves and drew such controversy. The House of Orange was an intrinsic part of this process, but because after 1650 their family members couldn't stand in Holland, the family remained somewhat neutered of its influence. Were the Dutch afraid of being turned into a monarchy? The removal of the honoured house by no means meant that the Princes of Orange had been forgotten. Across the Republic, pro-Orangist parties existed, and certain parts of the state were more pro-Orange than others, with Holland for the moment less fond of the family, and others like Freeland and Groningen, where cadet branches of the Orange family were stadtholders, being quite fond of the Orange family altogether. Thanks to the efforts of the Houses of Orange and Stuart to further their own positions, Charles I's daughter Mary married the late William II, and produced an heir William III, the eventual William III of England and second of Scotland. Before 1650, this intermarriage and subsequent English troubles meant that the Dutch were torn between supporting the ties that the House of Orange had forged by siding with Charles and the Royalists, or remaining neutral and pushing dynastic ties aside. It was easy to argue for the latter when the Dutch remained at war with Spain and couldn't afford any further distraction, but following the end of the war with Spain de facto in 1646 and de jure in 1648, requests for the Dutch to aid their connected House of Stuart family became more and more frequent. 
It is worth noting that the ties between the two houses didn't prevent the parliamentarians from trying their luck and sending reps of their own to The Hague on the basis that republican systems should aid one another. The Dutch did send a delegation to London in 1644 with an aim to mediate between both sides, but such efforts proved futile, and when the party returned in early 1645, they had offended Charles by not fulfilling what he construed as the obligations of the previous marriage, while Parliament was offended because their ideologically similar Dutch neighbour refused to become their ally. The Dutch states-general in turn was offended because neither sides were willing to negotiate with Dutch prodding, yet both professed to desire a Dutch alliance. In short, it was a very messy situation, and all the while the Dutch were attempting to close the war with Spain. Because the English Civil War had two distinct sides for individuals to rally to, it also contained two distinct navies. For the most part, more is known about the English Parliament's naval strength than that of Charles. In the case of both, though, the Dutch had to attempt to reconcile the need to do business with the British Isles with the very real divisions that existed within it. Ireland and parts of Scotland remained loyal to Charles, as did the Channel Islands and portions of England's colonial possessions in America. The problem was the Dutch still needed to trade with these regions to keep its profits up, but the Parliament could construe such actions as jeopardising its own security and prosperity, and may act against the Dutch by intercepting their ships. This became a more pronounced issue after 1649, when the English Commonwealth was in an unofficial state of war with France, and any Dutch trade along the French coast would also be construed as an act against the Commonwealth. In the twilight of the First Civil War, while Charles I remained alive in captivity, his French wife had retreated to France, and his sons, including the future Charles II, schemed with the Prince of Orange, William II, who don't forget was his brother-in-law. Such scheming may portray the declared neutrality of the Dutch Republic, announced as early as they possibly could in 1641, as a tad transparent. Yet, Simon Groenveld, in his article, The English Civil Wars, as a cause of the First Anglo-Dutch War, 1640-1652, notes that Anglo-Dutch cooperation was far from non-existent in the minds of the two houses, despite official state positions. Quote, The Stuarts, driven into even tighter corners but never at a loss for ideas, constantly appealed to the House of Orange for aid. Prince Charles, meanwhile, broke away from his mother's influence, established relations with William II, and lodged in The Hague with his councillors on several occasions. The principal topic discussed by the two young princes was whether Charles should enlist the Irish or the Scots to go to his father's aid. The opinions of his councillors differed. William favoured the Scots, but William was in fact powerless. Until he had made himself master of Holland and the Dutch army, he had to abide by the Declaration of Neutrality of November 1642, which was still in effect. The secret plans he and Charles made, for the most part aimed at mounting naval expeditions, never got beyond the planning stage. Such schemes nevertheless sometimes cost William large sums of money, and might well have jeopardised Dutch neutrality had they ever been discovered. End quote. It wasn't so simple for the House of Orange to behave as the House of Stuart did in the British Isles. Officially a monarchy did not exist in the Netherlands. The Princes of Orange were instead upheld as a kind of honoured family rather than a royal one. Any attempts to force the Netherlands into a monarchy would surely be met with gasps of horror, as indeed William II no doubt heard in his efforts to firmly establish his family as the quintessential royals of the Dutch. As we saw though, 
the House of Orange's political and diplomatic weight would be curbed in 1650 when William II died suddenly. While the Commonwealth's defeat of its Irish and Scottish enemies ensured its security for the moment. With its position secure, the Rump Parliament now sought to make its position clear abroad by sending a number of embassies to The Hague. A decade before, a delegation proposing close union with the fledgling parliamentary government had been sent to The Hague. It had been turned down on the basis that the States General did not believe in the legitimacy of the delegation. Subsequent actions, the harbouring of defecting royalist vessels, accommodating Charles I's sons, the pro-Charles bias of the embassies sent by the Dutch to mediate in the early 1640s, all added to the English Parliament and later the Rump's suspicion that the Dutch Republic favoured the Royalists because of its connections with the House of Stuart. J.R. Jones examines the reasons why, after a decade of being turned away, the Rump believed they now had a better chance of bringing the Dutch Republic into a union. Quote, when William II died in November 1650, after attempting a coup against Amsterdam, the States of Holland decided explicitly against appointing a new stadtholder, and a special Great Assembly was convened to discuss the constitutional process that this created. To English councillors and MPs, these developments were seen as paralleling those in England. A ruler had tried and failed to overthrow constitutional liberties. His removal and the abolition of his office temporarily relieved the danger but his partisans still posed a threat. The time seemed opportune for the only two major republics in Europe to unite against those who threatened their constitutions. End quote. The English position in this case is understandable, but it's also breathtakingly naive. Previous offers of union had been turned down by the Dutch not because they viewed the English as politically irreconcilable with themselves, but because the English offer suggested an unequal relationship dominated by London with none of the benefits or freedoms offered by the current arrangement. Why would the Dutch want to change the status quo when it so favoured them, and the English could offer no real incentives in return? In addition, what the Rump failed to realise was, just because Holland had failed to elect a stadtholder from the House of Orange, and just because Holland had decided to embark on a new course of government headed by the Regents, the name given to the wealthy individuals enriched by trade, industry and other ventures that served as the upper class of the Dutch state, this did not mean that the Republic in unison was willing to follow suit. Remember, Holland was a vital province, certainly the most important in the Netherlands, but it did not represent all of the Netherlands. The following months of negotiations would prove just how messy the entire provincial situation in the Netherlands was, and for the English, it would be seen as the accumulation of too many straws that eventually strained and broke the camel's back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This war has been broken up into four parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of part one, but not the end of the entire war, so please check your downloads for the next installment of the First Anglo-Dutch War. In this episode, we have examined the beginning of the Dutch and English diplomatic positions, as well as how their political bases operated and transformed. In the next episode, we'll delve a little deeper into the widespread competition that existed between both sides an attempt to assess whether the incredible offers of the Commonwealth delegation could be indeed taken at face value. Thanks for listening to part one, and I hope to have you with me for the rest. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tools. Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.